something that's curious about working memory is how limited it is really right, right. like it's it's very uh it's very stupidly limited right like three or four items really it's um it's uh you know like if you're if you're an ai person you're like why would i bother uh, <laughs> And that's the thing, right? It's like we have this system that has a very low capacity, and I think AI sees that as a bug. Um, and I think it's actually most likely a feature. <laughs> Is that why I'm such a slow learner? Because I'm always just using my working memory? Do I need to back off and try to uh, use my reinforcement learning more? What do I need to do? How do I learn better? <laughs> So I have two answers to this. <laughs> this is Brain Inspired. Welcome to Brain Inspired. It's Paul. Reinforcement learning has been one of the greatest success stories tying together brains, behavior, and artificial intelligence. Long ago now, reinforcement learning algorithms that were developed in computer science were imported into neuroscience to account for the brain activity associated with how we learn. Since then, a wide variety of algorithms and computations underlying various forms of reinforcement learning have been explored, along with the neural substrates possibly implementing those algorithms. However, our brains are highly complex entities. And as we've discovered more about learning, the story has become more complicated. It isn't clear how and when various brain activities map onto various particular equations used to describe how we learn. And people like Ann Collins, my guest today, are showing that reinforcement learning isn't the only game in town in terms of how our brains learn. Ann is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where she runs her computational cognitive neuroscience lab. One of the things that she's been working on for years now is how our working memory plays a role in learning as well, and specifically how working memory and reinforcement learning interact to affect how we learn, depending on the nature of what we're trying to learn. So in this episode, we talk about that interaction specifically. We also discuss more broadly uh, how segregated and or how overlapping and interacting many of our cognitive functions are, and what that implies about our natural tendency to think in dichotomies, like model-free versus model-based reinforcement learning, system one versus system two, and so on. Uh, and we dive into plenty other subjects, like how to possibly incorporate these ideas into artificial systems. You can learn more about on in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 154. Thanks to the Brain Inspired supporters. You people are the best. And it's just so generous of you to take the trouble to send a few bucks my way each month to help me make this podcast. And I always look forward to uh, our live discussions and our interactions. Thank you. All right, here's on. On, um... I know that you're not at SFN right now, the annual neuroscience meeting. And in fact, this, um, our, our discussion here is, I think, over a year in the making because I'd asked you so long ago, but you had decided to go and procreate apparently for the third time. Um, and, and you were telling me that that's, that's why you're not at this annual neuroscience meeting. So, but I thought maybe that was your first child. So I was going to ask you, you know, what it was, you know, how motherhood was, was treating your career and uh, otherwise, but, but you have three. Yeah. Yeah, I have three. They're uh, five and a half, three and a half, and um, six months old now. Um, uh, I'm not going to lie. Motherhood is rough with a career, especially if your partner has a career too. Um, actually, with my first child, um, my husband uh, wasn't quite working 
full-time yet um and so we were able to travel and go to lots of conferences and stuff like that <clears throat> which made for some really interesting memories of um you know, being at SFN with a baby in the pouch and stuff like that. Um, uh, but yeah, um, I think the combination of having the other two, having full-time career and um, just, you know, having lost the habit of traveling with COVID mm. too yep. um, has really made it much harder this year. Are, are you done? Are you going to keep going? What I stopped it too, <laughs> and I have a surgery uh, to, to, to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's a bit too much detail. Okay. okay. Um, I, <laughs> um, I'm one of six children. Um, oh. so people like feel like they can ask me this question. Um, I'm actually the fifth of, um, of six children. Um, but, um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think, you know, like it's already pretty, pretty hard enough, um, at this point. Um, and you know, I have three girls, uh, they're very lovely, but they're also a handful. So, um. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad that we're finally doing this. So I, I appreciate you um, <laughs> finally coming on to the podcast. It was a lot of emails back and forth in the making. So thanks for the persistence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am persistent. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about today about your work um, relating reinforcement learning uh, in the brain to working memory, and <laughs> and hopefully we'll talk a little about a little bit about uh, attention as well. But I, I wanted to start by asking you. Um, since you have, you know, you've worked a lot on the interactions between working memory and reinforcement learning, uh, I wanted to start by asking you just how you feel, how you would describe your outlook or your conception of learning and reinforcement learning uh, has changed or been shaped throughout your career. C can you describe that that sort of projection? Yeah. So you know, I I thought about it since you kindly sent me uh, the questions to prepare a little bit. Um, and I that's the question I had the hardest time with, actually, mm. because um, I got into this field not in a traditional way, not that I think many people There's have no a traditional career yeah. there, but um, I think in France, it's maybe, at least when I was there, it's maybe even less traditional. Um, you know, there was no undergrad um in anything close to cognitive science. Um, I, dis I discovered cognitive science as part of um, um, of my um, a breadth requirement um, in engineering school, um, you know, alongside with, um, you know, painting and music and stuff like that. Um, so it was really, I was in a very STEM-oriented um, hmm. undergrad and, um, you know, like um, this field was considered very outside of um, of scientific um, rigor, um, and because of that, I think I've I've had this approach that like I I dove into problems and didn't have much breadth or 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 height of view either, and immediately saw that learning was fairly complex, and throughout my career, essentially, that's been pretty much confirmed. <laughs> you know, like it's um. It's um. There's no like it's complex and um. Uh, Is it complex or, or when... complicated? Um, both probably. Okay. okay. Um, so... yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's both. Uh, really. Um, I was pretty lost at the beginning. I I feel like we're still pretty lost. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I felt from the beginning that there were you know many chunks to it, uh, which I think might maps to the complex um part yeah. and uh, and i'm still pretty convinced of that so um so it hasn't really changed much it's 
just you know like become more defined in a sense so a lot on this podcast we we've talked about um this current trend of reducing the dimensionality of like neural activity right and then um describing these lower dimensional manifold states that kind of you can start mapping onto cognitive functions <laughs> but what you're saying is that um learning is uh, high dimensional. I mean, how high dimensional is learning, and and do we need to keep it at a at a high D level, or are there dimensionality reduction techniques, you know, that we can um, use? I mean, for instance, reinforcement learning um, also, you know, yeah. just a uh, has turned out to be a uh, complicated affair, also, right? Um, so we call it learning. I guess that's the lowest dimension that we can term that we can use. Um, yeah. But in your in your, have you thought throughout your career that um, it is even more complex than you originally thought, or have you uh, been able to sort of take some of those chunks away and hone in on uh, what you think are are fundamental principles? Yeah, so I I um I've gone more the direction of more complex than less complex, and I think that's um um my undergrad major was in theoretical math, and I think lots of people in this field come from math or physics and have a bias for elegance and um you know like um you know unified theories and unified theories are wonderful and shared principles and stuff like that um and i think if there's room for that in the brain but i think um i think we're probably too much in that direction in the theory um of cognition i think um uh i think it's more messy you know, than we might like <laughs> um, for an elegant um, uh, theory. So I, so I do think it's, it's high dimensional. Um, but for your <clears throat> question as to whether I've been able to take out some chunks, um, yeah, I do think there are shared principles and maybe not shared principles, but shared computations. Um, and and I wasn't sure if I should count that as a different dimension or not, right? Mm. If you're doing the same computation, but apply it to different things, um, in a sense, algorithmically speaking, it's um, the same dimension, but um, it results in uh, a behavior that is differently dimensional um, or more complex. Um, and so I think it depends a little bit how you look at it. And I think, you know, like the... The trend in looking at the brain and, you know, um, taking manifolds and seeing their dimensionality and stuff like that tends to apply more, I think, to representations than to uh, changes in representations, um, which is learning, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, like computations uh, by themselves. So I don't think it's easy to define the dimensionality of computations, um, which I think learning is. Um, yeah. Sorry, that's a bit rambly. No, that, that's okay. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to grapple with uh, the, the sort of the different levels that we talk about and the dimensionality. Yeah. And, you know, so there's mm -hmm. cognition and then there's what happens in the brain, like the, the quote unquote mechanisms mm -hmm. and computations Absolutely. in the brain. Um, I, I just had Michael Anderson on to talk about his neural reuse and, and um, ideas and thinking about going away from thinking about modules in the brain and thinking more in terms of interacting uh, brain areas and how that, how the interactions, there are different players for different cognitive functions, but those like yeah. the same brain area will get reused. Right. And you, you were just mentioning, you know, if you're using the same computations in, uh, different areas, whether we should consider that 
um, you know, a different, a different dimension. But well, go ahead. I don't, I don't mean in different areas. I mean really. Um, so, so I think of a, of something very specific, which is the um, the corticobasal ganglia circuits. Mm -hmm. um, so there's loops that go from cortex to um, striatum to the uh, output of the basal ganglia through the thalamus and back. Um, and I think it's an example where we have, you know, a decent idea of what computation or transformation those loops do. Um, and we know that there's multiple of them um, with different starting points in, in, in cortex, right? And so I think that's an example of you know, not intra-region computations, but like a network mm. that's uh, making a computation or at least has a uh, some kind of algorithmic function or, you know, information transformation function um, that um, can be applied to different uh, things, uh, which may lead to uh, fairly different consequences on cognition and behavior. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, part of what we're going to talk about is um, maybe not the computation itself, but the idea of, uh, you know, adding a working memory component to a reinforcement learning algorithm, right? And you, you do that mm -hmm. within a computation. But yeah. uh, but then, you know, there are other cognitive functions like attention, etc., that maybe you're going to eventually yeah. throw into the, the, the equation. And would that yeah. mean, would that be a different computation? Or, you know, I'm trying to think about how to think about adding terms to an equation, right? And calling it a computation, does that change yeah. the computation? Do we think of it as one computation? What I was going to ask about is, you know, the modularity of the brain is is um, giving way to like interacting brain structures and like the uh, basal ganglia, um, cortical thalamic uh, loops, you know, that you were talking about. Um, and I, I'm I'm trying to think, you know, do we need to think of computations as modular or, you know, or as high dimensional? You know, how messy computations are clean. And the brain is messy, yeah. right? How to how to reconcile yeah. those two things? Yeah, I don't have a good answer, but the way I think about it again is um is um as a Taylor expansion, <laughs> or like I, I said, I did okay. math um, in undergrad. But you know, like essentially, we're 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 doing this thing, right? Where we um, we're trying to understand um, some aspect of cognition, and you know, via the brain. And, um, and, you know, like, we, we start with, you know, like a point approximation, okay, like maybe learning is like behaviorist or, you know, like cause and effect or something like that. Um, and then we're, we'll go, okay, well, actually, it's a bit more complicated than that. Let's, you know, let's approximate the function with a line. And, you know, you have two, you know, two, um, two, uh, two degrees of freedom. <clears throat> right um and then you could add a third one etc and and it's a little bit like that that i think about it um it's you know um at first approximation you know like it was okay to capture lots of learning with just the delta rule kind of rl model mm -hmm. um but then you dig a bit deeper uh you know and and i could tell you how i got into working memory um if you're interested Please. later but um oh, okay. um but, you know, and you discover you have to add working memory. So now you have reinforcement learning and working memory. And they're independent modules, you know, they're just, they're just uh, mixed for uh, output, but they're independent. And then, you know, you dig a bit deeper and you discover, well, actually, they're not independent modules. They kind of, like, um, have an impact on each other. 
And so you have to add that to the mix, etc. And and to me, that's the third order. And you know, uh, and uh, and and it's not the third order in the sense that it's less important or less true. It's just the third order in the sense that um, you can't really get to it until you've gone uh, to the, the second order first. Like you have to identify them as potentially independent uh, modules before you can even start thinking about how they might be interacting. Um, and so I agree with you. It's it's kind of tough um, because I don't think any brain region works on its own. But I still think we can try to isolate, you know, like first order kind of question um, um, uh, computations they do um, that will help us then understand how they talk um, together, how they and without having to assume that they're independent. Well, yeah, so the, the cognitive functions and the brain areas, and those are two separate things, obviously, but is this is a, well, maybe you'll have an answer to this. Is is working memory a thing, or is it working memory RL, like your model, right? Like your model just lumps them together, and then maybe that's a separate thing, or how do, where are the the bright lines between cognitive functions, right? If If they're interacting, so there's, Interacting is like two different things, but they are interacting. Yeah. Or we could consider yeah. that interacting system one thing or, you know, uh, so is working memory a thing? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a thing. Um, so I think I think it's the animal researchers who have the answer there. Um, you know, I think it's a thing on its own. If, if you kill one, um, uh, the other one can still work, mm. um, right? So I think if somehow you were able to... Um, you know, just take the approximation of my uh, reinforcement learning and working memory model without interactions. Um, I, I think if you were able to cancel out working memory, you would still be learning just fairly slowly. Um, and if you were able to turn off reinforcement learning, you would still be using working memory to do something that looks like learning. Um, uh, it would just have a fairly different um, characteristic um uh, behavior. So it's, I, I think it, the, the lesion sense of like, mm. if you take it out, does it still work on its own? Um, is a sense in which you can say, well, it is a thing, um, even if it's deeply enmeshed with something else. But in the brain, you would have to lesion a particular area and then tie that thing to a particular area. So, so then there, it's still not clear how to go from the level of, you know, the implementation level in the brain to the cognitive function level that we have named in psychology, for instance. Oh, I completely agree that it's very non-trivial to do that mapping, um, <laughs> and that that's a lot of work. Um, that that's that's an enormous amount of work to be done to do that mapping, and that goes through, you know, taking multiple approaches, you know, cross species, cross methodologies. Um, I I fully agree. You'll stick with humans, though. Uh, you know, I collaborate with um, yeah. with people. I, I I definitely won't do non-human research myself. I'm not qualified, but um, but I'm very very happy to collaborate with um, for example, uh, Professor Linda Wilbrecht uh, here at Berkeley, and you know others elsewhere, um, uh, to try to bridge uh, across species. All right, let's back up and talk about reinforcement learning itself a little bit more um, before we bring in your work in with working memory. You, you've written about the, and other people have written, like Nathaniel Daw, about the dichotomy uh, of model-free versus model-based reinforcement learning. Um, and, you know, these are were thought to be totally separate um, cognitive functions and in the brain, et cetera. And 
and now it's not so clear. Um, so I, maybe I'll just ask you, you know, what, what is your view? And there's a nice review that I'll, I'll point to that you've written um, about this dichotomy. So, so what is your view on model-based versus model-free reinforcement learning? Are, are they two separate things? Are they interacting? Are they one reinforcement learning thing? How should we think about that? Yeah, and I, I'll um, uh, mention Jeff Coburn, with, with whom I wrote this review. Um, so the title of the review is Beyond uh, Dichotomies. So I think that, that tells you a little bit. And maybe Sorry. just for, for listeners' sake, we I guess you should describe model-free versus model-based. Sometimes I don't I forget to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So model-free reinforcement learning is um, uh, this approach where uh, you assume you integrate um, uh, the information of about reward you've received for a given choice uh, over time, and you summarize it into a single cash value. So you say, like, if I go to this restaurant, in average, it has an expected value of 0.8, this one 0.6, or something like that. Uh, Model-based um, reinforcement learning, the way it's framed most often, is um, that you um, have a model of the world that tells you if I do this action, I expect to be in this state um, after that. And uh, you have a model of um, the outcomes, uh, which tells you if I am in this state, I also expect to experience this kind of valence. And uh, that you use this information in an effortful way to plan your choices. And so like, oh, if I um, go here, I expect the restaurant to be open, but um, I know that on Mondays they don't have my favorite food, so I actually don't expect it to be that good or something like that. And you combine that and you compute on the spot um, what the value is. Uh, so it's obviously super popular uh, framework, small base versus small free, and it um, <clears throat> resonates a lot with the whole uh, thinking fast and thinking slow. Um, there's a whole like history of uh, psychology uh, around uh, dual systems like this, and uh, everybody likes it, I think, for that reason. Uh, people think of it also as relating to habits versus goals. Um, Automatic short versus story, effort. Yeah, but yeah, yeah we, exactly. love, we love dichotomies. Mm -hmm. We love dichotomies. Um, the short story um, of our uh, opinion paper is that um, <clears throat> is that while this is a very um, productive framework, it's also very um, oversimplified. <laughs> and um, she said she ha she's well, going to have to wave like that every few minutes for the lights to come back on. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Um, I I'm in a green building. Um, and the green building <laughs> turns off uh, lights often, and I don't move enough when I talk. Um, so I don't mean oversimplified, but I think it's um, I think it's uh, it's approximating things and. Um, everyone who works directly in this field knows what those approximations are, but because the um, framework um, is um, very um, um, seductive in a sense, it's you know like it's a mathematically well-defined uh, model that seems to map on well to many uh, uh, many uh, heuristics we have. Um, it's been taken a little bit too seriously, I think, by people who are less familiar with the details of where it can go wrong. And I think it leads to, um, it, it can potentially lead to very big issues of over-interpreting uh, the findings um, and uh, over, uh, and also, you know, leading you 
down wrong avenues of research um, too. Um, so I'm happy to say more about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, if you want more details, but um, yeah, yeah, give me more details. I have a follow-up question as well. So, okay. Um, well, I, I think, for example, that um, you can make a reasonable case, um, you know, like for the more free computations in the brain. I think, you know, like there's been a lot of work around this and we have a good sense of a network. So to me, more free, I can accept that it's, um, it's, a, it's a meaningful chunk um, of uh, learning behavior. This was um, model free. Think, sorry, model free was the first kind of reinforcement yeah. learning discovered in the brain, yeah. Um, based on yeah. yeah. In a sense, you could consider it the most, the basis level of automatic learning or something, perhaps. Well, that's the thing. Is like I don't know that that's true. I don't know that it relates to habits. I don't mm. know uh, at least directly that it maps onto habits. I don't know that it maps onto automaticity. Um, um, I I know that lots of behavior that's well described by more free like uh, models is not um, you know this kind of implicit effortless. Um, uh, uh, automatic um, kind of process. So I think there's a bit of difficulty in mapping it to more, you know, uh, broader concepts like this. Um, but 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 I do think it has the benefit of, you know, like, uh, at least we have a good hypothesis for where and how it might be implemented in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, as far as model base goes, um, um, I think it's both uh, too much and too little. <laughs> Say more. <laughs> um, yes. So it's too much in the sense that I don't think it's a thing. Um, I think there's too many components um, in it for it to be thought of as a thing. Um, and there's many things you could um, say about that. But the simplest one is to say, well, you know, uh, there's the planning component. The planning component requires, uh, you know, like, either simulating things and holding them in working memory or doing it some other way. Maybe, you know, we have some approximations like um, I'm sure you've heard others. Um, um, but then there's also learning the transitions or, you know, like representing the reward function. Um, so so I think there's multiple subcomponents of it. Um, and so thinking of it as a chunk doesn't seem right. Um, and the second thing, I was going to say is that it's not enough in the sense that um, we often read, you know, even in very prominent journals, even in the abstract, something saying like learning is well known to be either more free or more based. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big, big problem to uh, say something like that. It's that there's many aspects of learning that are not um, to be put into either of those two um, bins. Um, and that uh, should go beyond. And if only because, you know, more free and more based are focused on this, um, on this type of environments where um, uh, it's sequential yeah. decision making. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so model based is, is too much and not enough. And mm -hmm. it's not a thing. And model free is a thing. <laughs> so what is that? Like, how should we think? It, uh, it's more likely to be a it's thing. It's more likely to be a thing. Okay. So probability of 0.7 being a thing. Um, okay. Well, I was going to ask you then, how, how should we think of 
as opposed to a dichotomy, how should we think of the, like the gradient or transition? Is it just piling more cognitive functions necessary? What we were, what we call model based is, um, I guess we could continue to call it model based, but just realize that it it, it compri- is comprised of lots of different elements, perhaps. Yeah. So it's this question of you know if you imagine you have um if you imagine learning as a high dimensional space. And um, you imagine you have the, you know, more free dimension here and you have more based. <clears throat> and and I think essentially that more based is not a single dimension. It's a, you know, like scatter plot. It's a manifold. And, oh, okay. yeah. yeah. And and the question is, um, the question is, what's what's what are meaningful dimensions that we want to consider out of this? And I think and and what other meaningful dimensions are there around uh, around this? Right. And I think. People kind of agree that mall free is one meaningful dimension in that because we can somewhat isolate it. Um, but I think in mall based, um, it's it's less clear. And I and so I think the way forward is to say like, okay, what are you know like the key core ingredients that can be isolated that then get mixed together hmm. um, to support learning? Is there a better term than model based then? How do we destroy the dichotomy? How do we correct the <laughs> dichotomy in words? I mean, I, I think, I, yeah, I think it, words are important, so, and in particular, not um, not equating things that are known to not be equated. So I think, for example, that um, it's dangerous to equate moral free to habits. It's dangerous to equate moral based to goal directed. Um, I, I don't think that's a one to one mapping in any um, in any way. And I think you know. Uh, Prominent mall based mall free people would agree with me. Um, um, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not picking a fight. I haven't discussed with people here. <laughs> it's um, um, it's it's more of a, the way we we approximate um, what we say uh, in papers, really. Mm. Um, so I don't know what the right um, wording um, is, but I think we need to. And 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 I think a strength of computational models is that. You can, um, you know, you can say exactly what you mean, but the problem is when you put, you know, like when you take the mall-based RL equation, um, it doesn't mean goal-directed, right? It just means like here's the, you know, way to compute forward <laughs> right, <laughs> the right. plan. Um, yeah. Okay, so maybe maybe we should talk about working memory and its relation to reinforcement learning. I, I think of it. Do I have it right that? the working memory and reinforcement learning that you study that you research as interacting you would that would be model free reinforcement learning right yeah um so so far anyway um, <laughs> you could call it model free or you could call it model based well, um the, is the interaction in this, between the model the model based component or is it no even okay. even individually uh, i think uh, because so, so here's the thing right it's like if the choice you're making only um, constrains what reward you get, not what the next stimulus is or next state you are in is, there's no way to distinguish whether you're doing more based hmm. or more free RL right. in the classic right. sense, right? And both models make the same uh, prediction. So in that sense, that's why I'm saying in, I'm, you know, like, I, I can't project it onto those two because, you know, they're making the same prediction there. So mm-hmm. they're collapsed, um, really. Um, 
that said, obviously, I do think that working memory bears more resemblance to based um, uh, than more free in the sense that it is um, something that we think of as a fruitful, more cognitive, uh, more, um, you know, more flexible uh, in the same way that uh, the mall based uh, processes. Um, but but yes, you know, the, the, the behavior we're looking at would have been modeled by the simplest model possible as a, as a mall free error uh, normally. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let me see if I can just describe the sort of overarching um, uh, conclusion or story uh, that you have, uh, that you continue to work on, but that you have thus far um, come up with regarding the interaction between working memory and reinforcement learning. So, uh, and then you can correct me. And then, but before that, I have a question about my own cognition. So if you give me something hard to do, like it taxes my working memory, right? Then when I make an error, um, there's a, 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 it's a, it gives me a, a large prediction error. Um, and yeah. therefore, uh, I actually, my reinforcement learning system then uh, is allowed to learn fast. Whereas if mm-hmm. you give me an easy task, um, that doesn't require much working memory. Um, then when I make an error, it, it leads to a smaller uh, reward prediction error. And that actually makes my reinforcement learning system um, learn more slowly. Right? Okay. So that's my summary of it. So, so, yeah. so, so that's nearly right. Okay. Um, it's nearly right. But it's not because it doesn't require much working memory. Um, it's because... Um, it's easy for you to use your working memory on this task. So if it's easy for you, you can use working memory um, oh, without to... much effort. Oh, right. Okay. It's it's um, There's a lower bar to actually using my working memory to perform the task. Right. So it's easy. Um, it's easy to hold. You can easily retrieve it. Um, and so you're using working memory for it. Um, and, and that's what's uh, creating the interaction. Okay. Okay, so my question about my so own... it's a bit of a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, it's it's subtle. Yeah, sorry. Thank you for the correction. So so my, my <laughs> question is, I'm a... Uh, sadly, I'm a really slow learner. <laughs> but um, I think I have high working memory capacity. Maybe it's easier for me to use my working memory. And so um, is that why I'm such a slow learner? Because I'm always just using my working memory? Do I need to back off and try to... Uh, use my reinforcement learning more? What do I need to do? How do I learn better? (laughs) So I have two answers to this. (laughs) One is, um, if you believe that my theory um, generalizes to the real world, Mm -hmm. uh, then yes, that's what you need to do. Um, You need to dual task yourself or something like that um, and make it harder for you to learn um, and, you know, prevent your more explicit working memory like processes from uh you know rescuing you which will um enable like kind of slower things like error um to uh, be less blocked um so you're saying i don't try and, hard and, enough you know, at things i don't i don't do things that challenge me enough perhaps n- no i'm not saying that um uh, because you might be trying hard to use your working memory um i'm i'm, I'm saying uh, you should distract yourself a little bit and actually you know it's it's interesting how actually well known this is uh, from a, a heuristic point of view. Um, 
my my voice teacher when I used to study singing uh, would make me do all kind of crazy things to distract me while I was singing, and oh. it would always result in better uh, <laughs> um, better uh, modern learning um, for for singing. Um, so you know, it's a trick that's known, I think, to educators. Um, but, and but I, thought I we, also we're, we're recently not discovered a review saying, "Yeah, go ahead, sorry." I think it's related, for example, to the concept of um, space repetition or stuff like that. Right. Um, but we're not supposed to multitask, right? Because then that means we don't perform well on anything that we're multitasking on. But what you're saying is maybe you weren't singing well while you were being distracted, but that, that led to better singing later. Is that what I should take from that? Um, I think it, it it led to not retrieving the thing that I was trying to explicitly retrieve, oh. which allowed um, the more implicit system to um, both make its own choices and its own predictions, um, and and so and so learn from them. I have no idea, right? <laughs> this is this is true. I don't yeah, sure. I, I don't study singing, this but that's a, a, that's what the implication would be. Yeah, let's turn this episode into a self help episode. Those are popular, right? So let's do that. <laughs> yeah. So that's my second answer. Actually, um, it's that um, um, you know I I think it's important as cognitive scientists um, to think about uh, applications of our findings. Um, but I also find it very terrifying, um, especially in my uh, domain where I study learning, um, um, especially because I study it in a, a, you know, because I try to deconstruct learning, I try to study it in a very well-controlled kind of environment that are not readily uh, generalizable to the real world. Um, and um, and uh I very much worry that um, that uh, people will do exactly what you're saying is like take my theory right. and assume it generalizes to the real world and apply it and um, and for all I know it could be you know it could lead to the opposite effect essentially because um, because of this Taylor expansion again thing right like because like I'm trying to deconstruct it and I'm going step by step but it's possible that orders three four and five you know might flip around because um, of, yeah because it's a complex system I've seen so far yeah um, exactly what do you think then and I'm sorry this is an aside because there are a lot of neuroscientists uh, <coughs> who do make life recommendations right and and take from their work. Uh, lessons for behavior and i know that that's the ultimate goal but are you skeptical of say a scientist who tries to make that transition into you know a life coach advice person <laughs> um i won't make a broad call on this Come on. <laughs> i think it's probably fairly dependent on uh, the specifics of um of what you study yeah um you, you know, essentially, the question is how generalizable, how, how much evidence do you have that the findings you have in the lab are uh, broadly applicable um, to real life? And I think plenty of people ask this question, right? Like plenty of people, you know, take lab experiments and try to relate them to real life outcomes in some ways um, or try to apply them to more uh, naturalistic experiments, whether that's, you know, like... Um, I don't know, I saw a recent paper, um, I think by Ross Otto's um, 
um, uh, team um, looking at choice of pizza uh, online or something like that, you know, and try to see like, okay, those principles we've developed in the lab, like, do they explain things also for more real kind of decisions? And so if you have, you know, done this kind of homework and are able to say like, well, the principles I derived are generalizable, then then sure, maybe you have the expertise needed to um to do that transition. Um, I personally, in my specific domain, don't feel like we're there. Um, and so I personally would be very worried about um, doing that jump, um, especially because I think, you know, the people um, who ask for this kind of advice tend to be vulnerable. Um, you know, people who want to improve um, uh, might have, needed to improve in a sense and so I, I you know I, I would not want them to be my guinea pigs on that um yeah so well since you said you're not there are, a do you have an interest in getting there and b how long do you project <laughs> where you would feel comfortable um i have an interest in getting there um I I confess that I'm um, my my primary interest is really uh, fundamental research, um, but um, uh, does that mean understanding the phenomena? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's 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 uh, uh, that's my primary interest. But but I do have a genuine secondary interest in uh, making this something useful for society yeah well you, you, i <laughs> Not mean that i don't think yeah you've studied this in the context of schizophrenia yeah. i know and you know so disorder so you you are applying it in that sense um and linking it to behavior but um absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and i and i and i do think you know um i mean maybe something that i'm even more interested in than um you know computational psychiatry um might be um education actually mm. um because i think you know, I think uh, there's lots of individual differences in how people learn. And I think, you know, if we understood things better, we might be able to help um, more there. But I definitely think that's somewhere where we have to be very, very, very careful because the impact on individuals, individual individuals, <laughs> is, um, yeah. you know, could be very big. So we need to really in, understand in these positive or negative directions. Yeah. Okay. So you, so it could be initial conditions, uh, and and applying some diagnostic or some procedure could uh, lead to to um, you know widely divergent results. Exactly what you said, right? Like if I go and take like a class of you know uh, third graders and tell them to and dual task them, you know, for the whole day because I think they're going to learn better. And then I discover that actually the impact of like, you know, <laughs> Three of the kids of, get really uh, fucked know, like, up and, and, of, and, of being dual tasked the whole day is that yeah. they lose all their motivation and they stop learning. And, you know, so maybe they retain that better, but the like downstream impact is completely different from what I thought. It's like, well, you know, like how ethical was this experiment? You know, like it's <laughs> well, you have your children. Uh, do so, you th do you think about that with your own children? Do you, do you apply this be behaviorally to yourself, and or and uh, we're going to talk more about what this is because you know the, the relation between working memory yeah. and, and reinforcement learning. But has it altered your own behavior regarding the way that you go about trying to learn things and or um, teaching things to your children? Um. I mean, I definitely think about it. Um, 
it hasn't really I, I wouldn't say it's altered it per se, but it 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 makes me consider things. Um, um, but it, I do a lot of Duolingo. <laughs> oh, you do. Um, and what, I. What is that? You have to just say I what that this, is. You have to say what oh, Duolingo, Duolingo is. Oh, Duolingo. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought that was well known. Um, Duolingo is an app for learning languages. Um, I'm a very uh, multilingual family, um, so um, anyway, I'm using that to um, to learn languages. Um, but I've definitely noticed the, you know, like the few times when the, the algorithm messes up and repeats the same sentence twice in a row, it feels very obvious that I just, you know, like repeat what I just memorized and that does not help me <laughs> store that information. Well, in like the it's long -term that it's in your working goal. memory still, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, which, which, which makes me likely to get a point right now, but makes me much less likely to do well, uh, you know, when they ask me again the next day. Okay. Well, since, since, um, okay, so we just said working memory or I did. So, so I guess the, con the conclusion thus far, um, and you can tell me any new conclusions that you've had recently or, or are on the verge of, is that working memory is actually contributing to reinforcement learning um, in your brain by contributing to the re reward prediction error. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, yeah. Um, and specifically to the expectation um, of the outcome. So the reward prediction error is the difference between the reward we get and the reward we expected to get. And what we think happens is that um, if working memory allows you to say, oh, I know what to do right now, um, it can also allow you to say, oh, I know that I should expect a reward for doing this right now. Um, and so that instead of getting the expectation of reward from the reinforcement learning system, we get it at least partly from the working memory system before the reinforcement learning system has uh, learned it. So that makes the reward prediction error smaller and that slows down learning. So then classically, working memory is thought of as the sort of online short-term storage and manipulation of information. Yeah. yeah. Would it be proper then to say working memory is also a learning uh, mechanism? It, it, uh, yeah, uh, I think, I think it is. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the, this, Words are complicated, right? No, words are easy. And, their their meaning is complicated, right? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's so so. No, okay. You, you can't call it a learning system in the sense that it's not um, it's not going to be long term, but it is a learning system in the sense that if you are in a dynamical environment where you're obtaining information and making decisions as a function of this information, um, working memory uh, contributes to um, managing that information and helping you make decisions uh, better and better. Um, so, you know, you pick what you call learning, okay. right? Yeah. Um, but I, to me, uh, it's a very clear player in the learning uh, environment. So I was trying to think of an example. Um, and let's say you're trying different, I think you said pizzas earlier, or restaurants. Or let's say you're trying different pizzas, right? You have a, you're in a uh, taste testing competition and you have five different types of pizza. Uh, and you, your job is to learn 
or maybe we could say decide or learn, you know, which, which is your favorite, right? So then you have to taste one and you eat your saltine cracker, but then you have to think, you know, can you go, okay, that one's pretty, oh, it's pretty good. And then on down the line with five, did you then learn which you prefer? <laughs> because that would be keeping it in your working memory, right? And that would probably be called learning. And I apologize if I'm taking us down a meaningless road here. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll follow your example. I think it's probably the timeline is probably a bit beyond what working memory um, I would be doing, but that's okay. Um, I don't think in the end, what you have learned would be in working memory, but I think working memory would have contributed to the process of learning. But then what you have learned is called memory and not, and not learning, right? So the learning is what I'm asking about. Because you, because there is a difference. Learning and memory yeah. are always associated, but the learning is the storing is is the process by which one is stores, <laughs> right? Sure. So yeah. then it, it is part of the process. Yeah. yeah. Um. I, I I don't know if everybody would agree with you that learning is just the process, not the outcome. Uh. But uh, I agree in, in that case. If you see learning as the process, then certainly I think, um, I think that um, um. Uh, that uh, working memory is an important part of the learning process. Okay, so we, you've established that working memory memory contributes to reinforcement learning, um, and you know, just going back to the idea of you know the the anti-modular brain, all the brain areas are interacting, um, all the cognitive functions seem to be interacting. So, uh, does reinforcement learning itself also affect working memory? Is it? Are, do they go back and forth? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually also wrote a review recently with uh, a postdoc in my lab, Aspen U, uh, where we tried to show that it's, you know, bidirectional. Um, uh, and I think that's actually better known. I think there's been for a long time uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, of, of computational models that show. It's, so, so it's this idea that, you know, um, reinforcement learning helps you learn. Um, we tend to think of it as, you know, learning concrete actions or, you know, concrete choices like pick between A and B or, you know, press this key or that key or, you know, like turn right or turn left or something like that. Um, but, but there's been for quite a while now this idea that you can apply reinforcement learning to more uh, abstract um uh, inner actions like deciding to store something in working memory or deciding to um, get something out of working memory. And there's there's a bunch of models, including Michael Franks and uh, Randy O'Reilly's and um, and others, uh, you know, uh, making good cases for this and for why it would be useful and and for why reinforcement learning processes might help you, you know, learn uh, how to use working memory in that sense. All right, so we're we're gonna throw another one in the mix here. Um, I, I just had <laughs> Carolyn Jennings on the podcast to talk about her philosophical account of attention, um, and so she has this this view that attention is at the sort of whole uh, organism level, uh, based on the it's the pri prioritization of um, just the mental prioritization by a, a subject or a self, and so of course, like. Well, maybe not working memory, but attention, you can talk about it at the whole organism level. You can talk about it as, you know, the, the thousands of different cuts you take, visual, spatial, feature, endogenous, you know, top down, bottom up. Um, 
So the, the, the question is, you know, what, what's the difference between attention and working memory? Because it seems you know, from like um, non-human primate studies, everywhere you have a readout for attention in a neuron, there's a readout for working memory as well. And it seems like they are inextricably intertwined. So I want to throw attention in the mix. And do, how do you distinguish between attention and working memory? And then what do you think about the effect of attention on reinforcement learning and in its interaction with working memory? <laughs> and we'll stop at three because it gets unwieldy. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you could you could go beyond for sure, but uh yeah. Um yeah, so I think attention is essential. Um and I think is it is attention a thing? Yeah, I mean working memory is a thing, is attention a thing? Yeah, no, I I think I think they're separable things, although I do think that um you know, there's a big overlap between working memory and attention. Um and and I think, you know, attention is also a term that is not necessarily defined the same by different people, um, same as working memory. So I want to be a little bit careful there. I'm also less of an expert in attention than than in working memory. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm treading a little bit lightly here. Um, but I think I want to... Um, I, want, I want to show two ways in which I think um attention or working memory can play a role in reinforcement learning that are separable and then you tell me if you think that okay. that matches two two different things or not okay. so i think one way we've talked about is working memory um is just holding information in mind um right so in my example it's when you learn you like you you know like you 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 um um, for example, see a stimulus, make a choice, get a reward, and you just hold that in mind. So like, oh, I got one point when I uh, pressed left uh, when I saw a, a, a red triangle, and so that's good. So I'm going to uh, hold in mind to press left for the red triangle. Um, so that's um, that's one function that working memory can have. It's like active hold in mind of something that you've constructed internally, um, this policy, um, then that, that you can reuse and that is useful for learning. A separate role um, is um, filtering. So if you think about it, um, reinforcement learning processes, um, they assume um, a state space and an action space, right? Um, and um, state spaces in the real world are, um, you know, approximately infinitely high dimensional, right? Like it's, you know, the number of pixels right. in on your retina or, you know, like it's very high. Right? Coming in per second, uh, But at any given second. time, yeah, um, but at, at any given time, only a very little bit of this uh, matters, right? And um, if you have this super high dimensional input, then um, there's no way your reinforcement learning system in the brain can learn anything about it right um and so it has to be fed some kind of state um in action that's much lower dimensional um to be able to learn at any reasonable um rate and so i think a critical role of attention in interaction with reinforcement learning is to provide that uh, state space and action space uh, over which the computations are going to 
um, be applied. And so to me, that's separable from the other role um, that I mentioned uh, previously. And it's, you know, as important, if not more. Um, but it seems to me like you can see here fairly different functions um, uh, happening, even though I think working memory does need attention. And maybe this attention uh, component also might somewhat rely on working memory to hold in mind what's relevant. Um, so I, I, as usual, I don't think they're fully dissociable, uh, but I still think that you might be able to isolate some functions. I fear I'm I'm belaboring uh, a point here, but you know, so so there's a filtering. What you just said is there's a filtering mechanism um, that allows this infinite dimensional space uh, to be filtered down to a lower dimensional space, um, and in that sense, attention might be necessary for. Would you say attention is necessary for working memory because working memory is by def definition in a low dimensional space, um, seven plus or minus three or whatever it is, and then depending on your the system of working memory you're dealing with, you can only hold a few things in mind, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's necessary in 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 my specific domain. I, I, you know, I think there's different types of working memory, and actually, the seven plus three in my case is more like three or four. Um, Mine's like twelve. But um, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, um, but yes, I think it's uh it's um in this domain at least i think attention is necessary but i do know that there's other domains of people who study short short term visual working memory for example um where they show um uh, effects that are that seem less dependent on attention so hmm. uh, again not not my not my not my specialty so i i don't want to comment too much on that yeah do you have uh, plans to, you know, study attention and how it interacts with working memory and with reinforcement learning? I mean, I, I was referring to that, I think it was a current opinion piece, um, where you talk about the p potential role of attention. Um, because attention yeah. and working memory are both under the umbrella term executive function. And often you use the yeah. term executive function and its interaction with reinforcement learning. So mm -hmm. are, is there interest in applying these different executive functions also? Or... Is there just so much to do with working memory itself that it's going to keep you occupied uh, until you're ready to tell the world how to behave? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm I'm looking into it. Um, although I think there's been very nice work done already on attention by you know by Yael Neves lab, for example, by um, um, Shiva Farashahi and Arisa Sultani, and by others. Um, but um, uh, the, the way I'm approaching it is more um, less directly from this attention construct and more from the um, this question of, okay, what are the inputs to this reinforcement learning function? Um, we've, as modelers, we've taken for granted what those states and actions and rewards are. Um, but can I try to dig a little bit deeper into what our, you know, like what behavior tells us about um, how, um, what states and actions uh, we actually feed into those computations um, internally. Hmm. Um, and I think that will inform us onto the, how executive functions and attention um, play a role in reinforcement learning, but not by going directly uh, through the classic attention route, if that makes any mm -hmm. sense.
so if I um, if I model some behavior and or neural activity using model free reinforcement learning, or let's not say model based, but the other what some other kind of uh, reinforcement learning algorithm and computation, and it approximates but doesn't you know perfectly describe the behavior because it's science. Do I think? Um, do I think well? That's because the the computation isn't really what's happening, or do I think that it's due to um, neural variability and noise, or do I think that there's always this ongoing interaction between the different cognitive functions, like working memory and attention, and they're having an effect that I'm just not pulling out because my task isn't right, or I'm not asking the right question, etc. I mean, because all of these things are. It's not like working memory turns on and then does its thing to reinforcement learning and then goes back to its cave or something. All these systems are always constantly interacting. So um, I don't know. Maybe that's too much of an open-ended question. No, I think I see what you mean. Is like, I mean, uh, I'll try to give a case example and you tell me if it's representative, right? Okay. So uh, in my... The key way in which I can reveal working memory um, is by having people learn about a different number of things in parallel. Uh, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes six, right? Um, and, and that's what allows me really to say, okay, there's working memory and reinforcement learning because people learn at different speeds in different uh, numbers of items and uh, reinforcement learning just can't do that. Okay. Um, so now take an experiment in which you only have one number of things that you're learning in parallel. So for example, all the time you're learning about four things. I still know that working memory is playing a role, but I also know that I can't use my model um, to identify working memory in there because it's not going to be identifiable yeah. um, in this experiment because I don't have that leverage. Okay, so one answer is, well, you know, the experiment is wrong. I'm not going to be able to put working memory, but that's a bit frustrating because I might have done this experiment so that I can manipulate other things and, you know, um, and answer other questions. Um, so the other thing I can do is, um, you know, still use a reinforcement learning model, for example, <laughs> um, but be aware of its limitations, right? And say like, okay, I know in this case that this reinforcement learning model is not um, only accounting for a reinforcement learning process, but also for contributions of a working memory process. Even though you can't tease them out. Even though I can't tease them out. And, you know, just knowing that is already going to limit, you know, the errors I make in interpreting my findings, Interpret right? Yep. If I find an effect in of, you know, symptom X on the learning rate, I'm not going to attribute it directly to the brain's reinforcement learning process. I'll say, well, maybe it's the brain's reinforcement learning process, but it could also be uh, from the brain's working memory process, right? So I think the the the, the um, uh, uh, you know w what's important is knowing what you can and can't <laughs> conclude um, from your models, and obviously you're going to have different goals in different experiments. So sometimes it's important that you capture as much variance in the behavior as you can, and sometimes it's not. Um, um, and um, what's important is transparency, I think, mm. uh, around that. Well, um, yeah, but we have to interpret yeah. in our conclusions, is which is sometimes perhaps the least um, enjoyable part. Uh, perhaps I don't know. That's a question. Is it? Is that? 
in some sense, it's the most fun part, right? Because you really want to understand, but then maybe you're, that's where you're least one, maybe least confident is in, or should be least confident is in interpreting the results. Yeah, I mean it's the riskiest part in a sense. It's uh, it's the um, it's where you like, you know, put yourself on the spot to a degree, and 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 it's the process of science. I think it's where you can generate predictions in a sense, right? Saying like, well, you know, um, this is risky. This is how in, um, I'm interpreting it, um, and either I'm convinced that my results fully support this conclusion. Um, in which case I need to make that case, <laughs> um, or I'm not, in which case I need to uh, state um, how I would strengthen um, this, you know, say like, well, if that's the case, then I should also see this and that, and it could be tested in this way and that way. Um, you, you know, I'll, I'll make a shout out to um, this nice um, uh, paper by... Uh, Parliamentary um, VR and Cochrane, um, you know, that made the case for uh, falsifying um, models. So not just you know fitting models and saying that quanti quantitatively they fit better than another model, but also saying that they make qualitatively different predictions than other models, um, and that those qualitative predictions are um, uh, borne out. Um, and and that's very task dependent, like you said. It's like you you need to design the tasks that will answer uh, allow you to um to get the models uh, to give those answers. Do you think that it's a better career move to just make wild claims um, and strong interpretations? Um, so that I, I've said this before on the podcast that when I was interviewing for a, a postdoctoral position, this the faculty member that I was interviewing with said when he was a postdoc, his advisor told him to just say as much crazy shit as possible, and eventually either something will be true, or either way, it'll get a lot of attention. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know what to say. I mean, <laughs> I'm not very good at this. I think I'm not a very good marketer. Um, right. That's um. And unfortunately, I think you're right. You know, I think, um, I think, um, uh, uh, overstated claims get attention and, and in particular get editors' attentions yeah. and, and get past desk review. Yeah. Um, you know, they get, get past desk rejection. And, um, yeah. And so, I mean, I, there's research on this, right? <laughs> it's not just my impression, right? Um, it, it, it pays um, for individuals' careers. Um, I don't think it pays for science, though. I mean, I feel like I've seen, I've seen lots of people follow uh, through research directions that, you know, like I told them I thought were wrong, and, you know, they spent two years in it, and then, you know... Um, so like, oh, I guess I can't identify that model in this experiment. Like, sorry. <laughs> um, so I, I, I would not recommend doing that. But, um, but unfortunately, you know, we live in an ecosystem, right? Uh, so. Right. You're never supposed to admit when you're wrong in our ecosystem. Uh, you get elected president of the United States when you, <laughs> when you never admit that you're wrong. So I don't know. There's, you know. All right, we'll move on. Go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. <laughs> if you if you want to comment, go ahead. 
<laughs> no, I mean, it's 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 very unfortunate, I think, that um that there are very strong incentives to, you know, like to make uh to big claims um uh to yeah, um in the system. I think it's bad for science. Um so no, I wouldn't encourage anyone to do that, but at the same time, you know, I recognize the strength of the incentives. Uh, speaking of saying crazy shit, um, you want to talk about artificial intelligence for a few minutes? <laughs> How, if you want. How's that for a segue? Um, uh, so one of the, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about, uh, your work about, you know, working memory, interacting with reinforcement learning, and then, then the broader picture of cognitive functions interacting and how it's a complex mess. Um, you know, I'm wondering if there are lessons that, um, uh, I'm not sure how much you know, how much you're into the artificial, the deep learning world and the artificial intelligence um, explosion. But I'm wondering what lessons we can draw from work like yours that is, you know, peering into the interactions between these. Because, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of um, attention being added to artificial networks, and the attention in transformers we don't we can skip over. But there are other forms of attention that are being added to deep learning networks that are improving them in certain ways making them more biologically realistic and, you know, not that AI cares about that, the AI world. But, you know, do you have uh, advice or, or, or just in the broader scope of things, are there lessons to be drawn from this? So one more, I'll add one more thing. You know, the idea of, like, you have your equation, right? Your reinforcement learning working memory equation. Um, you know, is it right to just cleanly add that equation into an AI system and then say, well, now we've put working memory into it? Um, or, like, do we need to understand all these interacting cognitive functions and their quote-unquote mechanisms to implement them? I mean, how far do you think AI can get by just putting a clean computation in and an algorithm? Eventually, they're going to have to interact, right, to get real intelligence. Do we need all those, all the components? What are the components? What, what, what is there to glean from this kind of work? Um, <clears throat> thanks for the question. Yeah, so I, I do follow AI, although I don't think anyone can follow it at the no. pace it goes. Or know, neuroscience. Like, <laughs> or neuro, or um, just the neuroscience of attention or working memory or any yeah, of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. But AI is pretty particularly uh, crazy these days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I do try to keep, um, uh, keep an eye on it. Um, so... Um, I, I do think um, crosstalk uh, in the dire I mean, in both directions, but in the direction of cognitive neuroscience towards AI, um, could be very beneficial to AI. And I don't think it necessitates us to have figured out all the interactions and uh, um, and stuff like that. I think we're getting lots of um, our, our precise, you know, details. I think we're getting lots of insights as to things that matter, even if we don't exactly exactly how they matter, um, that can be used, um, that, 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 that should serve as inspiration, if not exact models um, for AI um, um, agents. Um, I, I think working memory is an example, um, although, and that I'd love to see more tested. You know, I, I think in, I think, um, Something that's curious about working memory is how limited it is, really, right? right. Like it's it's very uh, it's very stupidly limited, right? Like three or four <laughs> items, really. It's um, it's uh, 
you know, like if you're if you're an AI person, you're like, why would I bother uh, well, <laughs> considering well, such a? Yeah, I mean, I've even seen you know in like the neural Turing machines where you know that you have a long term yeah. memory storage. It's even sometimes called working memory because you could just retrieve it after a few steps, right? So, so in that sense, it's working memory. But in the you know we would consider it more like long term memory or something. Yeah, no, it's long term memory. It's, I mean, I in, no system that has a high capacity. Um, can be called working memory, I think. I think, and, and that's the thing, right? It's like we have this system that has a very low capacity, and I think AI sees that as a bug. Um, and I think it's actually most likely a feature, <laughs> uh, although I don't have proof uh, of that. But I think it's a feature in the sense of attention, essentially, of forcing um, a bottleneck on processing uh, that enables us to uh, create a small state space over which being fast and flexible is much easier than over a big um, and complex um, state space. But and if, so I think, go ahead. I was going to say, but if I had unlimited or much less limited resources and computational speed, would I still need that? Because it, it does seem to be dependent on limited cognitive resources. Well, I think, you know, I think, um, I, th I think if you're, you know, um, uh, someone trying to do automatic, um, like uh, self-driving cars or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, you care about how much resources you spend and how quickly you're able to adapt in a different uh, environment, right? Um, um, even if you have much more uh, than humans, uh, right? You have limited resources and a very limited amount of time um, to interact uh, to, to a new situation. So, so I think. You know, even if you don't take the exact three, four um, number uh, seriously, I think you you should still take the you know more general idea of like maybe a a, a bottleneck is a good principle um, uh, seriously. Just not. I our, think there's other examples. Sorry. Just not our dumb limited bottleneck, perhaps maybe a larger, uh, wider capacity bottleneck, <laughs> depending yeah, maybe, on how fast uh, maybe, you need to make decisions, right? Yeah, maybe. I think I think it's an open question. You know, I think I think um, I, I think it's some, something to be explored, really. Um, and I think there's other examples. You know, like there's another side of my work that's about structure learning um, that that shows very um, that that humans have those very strong biases to to create complex you know uh, structure where they don't necessarily need to do so. Um, and you know, that's kind of an anti. Uh, uh, anti-Occam's razor kind right. of thing where you're like actually complexifying things instead of simplifying them. And, um, and that seems like very counterintuitive in a sense, but, um, but then what we see is that by creating this kind of, um, uh, bigger structures, you end up being more flexible later on, um, for generalizing. And so, and, and I've seen actually recently a few AI papers, like, having this kind of ideas um in there so so i do think you know i i do think there are ideas uh, that come out of this research that could usefully be exploited not as is um but um uh as you know broad ideas that then can be translated into uh, their own use for um, uh, for ai hmm. I, I think there's a more pragmatic answer to your question too, <laughs> uh, which is that um, uh, 
honestly, my impression of AI papers is that they're terrible at analyzing behavior. <laughs> uh-huh. mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've seen that, but um, uh, the performance of AI agents is often just like how many points did they get? Sure. Something like that. Right. And I think, and I think we we could learn so much more about um about the representations and the and the and the computations that those agents um do with more careful careful uh, analysis and i think that's something that cognitive scientists do very well <laughs> and could maybe teach um uh, a little bit um to more ai people how about the idea of okay so we, we've talked about the interaction between working memory and reinforcement learning but uh in yeah. in the brain you kind of think of these systems as mostly separable right um and so you could imagine implementing some working memory network um, and then kind of having it connect with a reinforcement learning agent or network, right? In a robot or, or just a large artificial network. But then you take something like attention, a cognitive function. Um, and we know that, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, attention and working memory are highly intertwined. Um, and just cognitively, you know, they're highly intertwined. But also when you look in the brain, you see, you know, lots of neurons who have attention modulated activity and working memory modulated activity. So I think in AI or in deep learning, um, the idea would be to just, you know, add an attention network and have it connect to a working memory network. Whereas in the brain, these things would be, you know, overlapping a lot, right? And and widely distributed. Um, So, I mean, would you imagine that in an AI system that, you know, you would need to build it to generate true intelligence or something more human-like, that you would need to build it in the same way as it's um, as it develops in our brains um, at the implementation level. Would you need to implement it in in that same kind of overlapping way? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I mean, when you think about transformers, um, which is is the way I think of. Um, you know, having most successfully implemented attention in uh, in recent deep learning stuff. Attention. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, it's um, it, it is uh, it is embedded right in that sense. It is like uh, it is yeah, uh, present right. throughout right. the networks, right? Um, so um, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I I should have I should have even thought of that before I started spouting off about yeah adding it as a module. Um. But, but but I think most most of the time um, the approach is more like you said before is to create a separate module and make it you know like you know only regroup it um, somewhere towards you know the end of the of the of the of the process or something. Um, yeah, I, I I really don't know. Uh, <laughs> it, it seems to me like the the more the more successful approach. Um, I don't know. I guess I can think of examples of both, right? Like, like you said, the neural Turing machine has this kind of like modular um, um, uh, structure that was very successful for for certain applications. The transformer has that much more integrated um, structure that's uh, successful for other approaches. Maybe that's where we can learn more. You know, like if we go back to our dimensions at the beginning, right? Like mm-hmm. if you know, maybe the fact that it's omnipresent tells us that it's less of a pure dimension <laughs> than we think um, it is, um, uh, you know. And maybe that's where we need to do more work. I don't know. 
is intelligence itself a super high dimensional space or or because you know um, we measure it with one number often yeah well i mean we all know how controversial that is right <laughs> yeah yeah um yes i think i mean i i have no expertise in this either but i i don't doubt that <laughs> intelligence is super high dimensional yeah you are a you're a classical singer what does that mean Not, yeah like what does that mean operatic opera yeah classical you know you, uh, you, mozart's requiem stuff like that <laughs> oh okay you play an you play probably multiple instruments you're multilingual you probably play multiple instruments you you probably I dual task the on the instruments so that you can learn them better right <laughs> <laughs> i play the cello <laughs> oh of course you do okay well i don't know if you've ever been in a band i don't uh, particularly like it when scientists name their band something like sciency, and then especially if they sing about their science, that's the worst, you know. But uh, <laughs> when I, even before I was in uh, neuroscience, before I got into grad school, I wanted to name my band Working Memory. You think that's an okay band name? And I, I know it's better than reinforcement learning. <laughs> um, it doesn't ring very nice to me, but you know, too sciency. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, too clunky, right? Working um, memory? I thought I think it has a nice ring. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm not a native speaker, so you know. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know what the French would be. Okay. Well, thank you so much, An, and um, carry on the work into your ripe old age, and stop having children. You know, it's going to interfere with your your career even more. So, so thanks for being with oh, me. Oh, they're lovely, and they'll have their own career. <laughs> <laughs> I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you. Thank you for your support. See you next time.